Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Welcome to this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Now, Charles and I decided on a topic that we were going to cover, but as always, we do our own preparation and research independently because we don't want our conversations to be orchestrated. So today we're going to talk about the Lord's Prayer. And in our house, or when I was growing up, it was referred to as the Our Father. Let's say the Our Father. And by the time you say it over and over and over again at home and in church, you sort of know it by heart. But there is a potential drawback to committing parts of liturgy to memory is that we can recite them so often that we sort of turn off our minds as to what it is that we're actually saying and what the implications of what we're saying are. So, Charles, I'm just curious. Do you remember your earliest recollections or experience with the Lord's Prayer? Yes, I think I do. I was raised in the Methodist Church. Uh, at that time, it was called the Methodist Episcopal Church South. Uh, some of our listeners may know that the Methodist movement actually came out of the Anglican Church in England. Um, but our worship at that time, I have no idea about Methodist churches today, but was very liturgical. But one of the things that we did on a, every Sunday is we uh, repeated the Lord's Prayer and also professed our faith in the Apostles' Creed. So, yes, I absolutely, I remember it, and uh, it has been one of the most important parts of my own faith. And every church that I've served in the 30-plus years that I've been a pastor, we always include the Lord's Prayer in our worship. So the idea for this particular podcast came during one of my teaching classes the people in the class and I were going through Rush Dooney's Systematic Theology. And we always use his chapters as a springboard for discussion. Well, it came to mind that if we're going to be consistent in our faith, then we need to examine why we say this prayer. We need to examine why certain churches no longer say this prayer but let's just for the second, because we'll talk about those other churches later. For those of us who do, we say it as individuals in our family life. We say it in church situations. Do we understand the radical nature of what it is we are petitioning God for? So the question, Charles, that we're going to discuss today is, are we really eager for Christ's kingdom to come? Well, I'd like to think that we are, but I think you and I both know that many people, first of all, they don't have any idea what that would look like. And, you know, I try to stress in my teaching and preaching that the message of the um, the Gospels is that Jesus went about preaching the kingdom. Uh, he didn't go about preaching, come to the altar call and get saved. That's a small, small part of the message of the kingdom. But I think this is one of those areas where in our times, uh, we are largely ignorant of what you just said a moment ago, the radical implications, the powerful implications of what this prayer is actually saying. Now, I think it's important and maybe helpful to some to place this prayer within the context of Jesus and his times, because it was the habit of um, 
the Jews in the days of Jesus and sometime before and even now, they had a set group of prayers. Some of them were said in the morning. I believe those were called the Amida prayers, and they were a cycle of 18 petitions and statements in these prayers. So the um, the type of prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and through them us uh, was not very unusual in the sense that, you know, here's a prayer that you need to pray and pray regularly. But there are some things about it that even in his time were very, very transformative and um, radical, if I can use that term. For example, the first two words, our father. Now, some people will know because they've heard somebody say something about it, that uh, it it comes from a word that means daddy. Well, not exactly. It does mean father, but it's more of a term of respect. But here's what made it very interesting. And if you see the Lord's Prayer in Greek, the word for father is left in the original Aramaic language, which is what Jesus spoke. Most of the Jews in Palestine and Galilee in that time Aramaic was the regular language. Hebrew was used in synagogue and temple services. But he taught his disciples to say Abba, A-B-B-A. It's not a Swedish singing group. It's an Aramaic term that means our father or my father. Now, what's so important about that is that he set a standard whereby the people of his time and forever thereafter can understand and speak the language that they're used to speaking and speak to God. So you see, he didn't, the prayer did not need to be in Hebrew. We we see a similar thing with the Muslims. You know, the, the Quran, the, the, the Muslim system for it to be authentic, it can only be in Arabic. But this had tremendous implications for the fact that billions and billions of followers of Jesus around the world can pray to him in that prayer in their own language. So that is one aspect of it that people should understand and and remember that by using that simple word, Abba, rather than the Hebrew term, and even in the Greek text, they could have simply said, Ho Pater, pater, which is Greek for our or the father. But even in the Greek, they left the Aramaic form of the word Abba. So this is a very intimate prayer. It is a very personal prayer, and it's a very family-focused prayer that we are, in fact, speaking to our Heavenly Father. So by implication, there isn't a universality that God is everybody's father. This is a specific, truly personal relationship because the way that God is referred to, it's reverently and it acknowledges the fact that there's authority there. So wouldn't you say that starting off, anyone who questions the authority of God in his word is rebelling against the the fundamental essence of this prayer. Absolutely. And the point you just made, I think it's very important as well, because the phrase, our father, means specifically he is our father and not everybody else's. Now, people don't like that because many Christians even have embraced more of the Freemasonic idea of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. That may sound very noble, but it is absolutely not biblical. There's nowhere in Scripture that any sort of thing is talked about. So the idea is that we are speaking to our covenant God. He's made a covenant with us through Christ Jesus, his son, and we speak to him in this way. Another thing, and I thought you were going to go there, but I had not known, for example, until you brought it up about Abba being in the Aramaic. So 
I like it when I learn things during our discussions. But specifically, what I was going to bring up is if you take a look at the verses in Matthew that precede Jesus actually giving the form of prayer. Now, before I get into those previous verses, he's not saying this is the only prayer you can pray. He's saying this is how you pray. And he was giving an example of it. It's a very good example, and there's no reason why we wouldn't repeat his example, but he's really talking about the way in which you pray. But what preceded it was a discussion on prayer, and he says, you should not do it as the hypocrites do. Oh, wow. So you can pray hypocritically. And that's what got me thinking about how much do people really want to see the kingdom of God and the law of God in place now. If you're praying, thy kingdom come, are you saying in a couple of weeks, in a couple of hours, in a couple of millennia? Um, what are you saying? So the the way it's phrased, it means that this is what we want. And I'm wondering, and this goes for myself as well, how often do we have the divided loyalty that, oh, yes, Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And yes, we want his kingdom to come, but, but, but not yet. Yeah. And I like the way that the, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism explains that particular part of the prayer. And the catechism says, in praying thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. I mean, it is, it is um, not only in its original form in the prayer itself, but the implications of it, as explained in the catechism, it, it expresses an eschatology of victory. Uh, we are praying that God's kingdom will come, and there is an urgency in the nature of the prayer, and we can pray that prayer because of what Jesus gave to us in the so-called Great Commission, that we are to make the nations Christ's disciples. That's a part of the advancement of the kingdom message and the advancement of his kingdom. Now, I guess there are some uh, Christian folk who uh, maybe would lament the fact that if the kingdom comes too soon, they might have to give up Netflix or cheeseburgers. I don't know. But what the Lord has in store for us is so much better than anything the fallen world system offers. So what we are praying for and maybe this is why a lot of church, churches don't, because what they are, what we are praying for is, as I just said, and as the catechism explained, the, the hastening of the day in which the kingdoms of the world have become, are become, will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. So you wouldn't say that this is a futuristic prayer only. In other words, Jesus, while he had his earthly ministry ongoing, said the kingdom of God is here, is now. So this prayer isn't for some future date. It's that we'll start off with in our lives, what will it mean for the kingdom to be present? And before I throw that question out to you, those other verses that also precede him actually giving the form of the prayer points out that this is what you do when you pray to your father in secret. He doesn't want vain repetitions. And he already knows what you need before you ask him. So the question is, do our prayers reflect what we should be praying for? 
because God already knows our hearts. So do we come to him in prayer double-minded? Because as you said, there may be things that will rock our security. So for example, all public schools close tomorrow. What are the people of God going to do? All welfare checks stop. What are the people of God going to do? It would probably get messy, don't you think, Charles? Yeah, I think people would uh, have to come to terms with where their loyalties are and what their true hopes for the future are based on and whether or not theirs is, in fact, uh, the true religion of Scripture and biblical faith as opposed to humanistic faith, uh, which would much prefer the other things along with a few trappings of religion. You know, I, I think that there are the reason some churches never pray the Lord's Prayer uh, is maybe they don't like the wording of it in terms of what it actually implies, as we've been talking about. You know, and as far as the the more than just future orientation, the this now present age orientation is reflected in the fact that, you know, we, we pray, thy will be done on earth. Not that it will be done in some future so-called millennial age, but now. And also, obviously, give us this day, what, our daily bread. Uh, not, not feed me 2,000 years from now when you return, Jesus, but th- everything about this prayer is a contemporary current application of the message of the kingdom. And if that excludes the uh, trifling nonsense of the present age, then uh, praise the Lord for that. And then there are some people who I think shy away from praying this prayer because, you know, they, uh, well, you know, I, it, it would be too, it would become rote. It would be just some habitual thing that would cease to mean anything. That's the excuse that some people also give for only celebrating the Lord's Supper, you know, once in a blue moon. But that that's not the problem with the prayer. The prob- That's the problem with the person who's praying. You know, the problem uh, with uh, someone who decides their, their diet will consist daily of nothing but cream puffs and cannolis that's not a problem with the with the with the pastry. It's the problem with the person who's chosen to eat it that way, uh, and and to stuff themselves with something other than, you know, healthy food. Uh, right. If something has become rote in worship, and especially in in terms of the prayer, it's because we have not approached it properly. And I learned this early on with my son when he was little. He would listen to commercials that were playing on the radio, or he would listen or watch commercials on the television. And he could say them verbatim, Charles. I was mm. like, wow, he knows the whole thing, much so that I don't think I could have done it. And it dawned on me that if he can do that, he could memorize the book of Proverbs. He could memorize passages of scripture. And so somebody will say, yes, but see, it won't mean much to him because, you know, those commercials didn't mean much to him. But there's something in Psalm 119 that talks about hiding God's law in our heart. And how does that happen? It happens through repetition, but it also happens with instruction along with that repetition. So yes, as I mentioned earlier, the tendency is that it could be rote. Absolutely. Well, Jesus is Lord could be rote. Praise God could become rote. And as you pointed out, it's not the problem with the words. It's the problem with the speaker. And so when I say the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, what does that mean? What would Christ's kingdom look like throughout the entire earth right now if it was here in its fullness? 
Would we have affirmative action? Would we have inclusive language? Would we have to have quotas for things? Is that what God's kingdom looks like? Well, if the answer to any of those is no, then why do we tolerate it? Why do we accept it? And why don't we do something about it? Well, I think the short answer to that is because Christians have made their peace with a different God and a different law order who promote such things. You know, in a, in a in another time, the idea of what would the kingdom coming now look like, we might have had folks who would have said, well, it kind of looks like uh, Haight-Ashbury in 1969. Heaven forbid that would be the case. Or, right. you know, people throwing petunias at each other in some sort of non-biblical perspective about living in peace and prosperity. Uh, those things are part of the kingdom, but according to how Scripture defines those things. And the fact that there would be people who would, when you say to someone, when you pray thy kingdom come, or when the, when you read that in the scripture, if you don't pray it, what do you think that means? If they don't roll out some dispensational tinged answer, there's like a blank spot. They don't know. And I think that the problem is in whoever has been teaching them God's law word has simply vacated that aspect of the teaching. And I think today we're living in the aftermath of hundreds of years of neglect about the teaching of the kingdom. And if there, if there, if there's that blank space about what that looks like, something else is going to, to fill it. And right now we are seeing the attempt of humanistic man to fill that space to propagate the fallen world system vision of a kingdom. So every kingdom has laws. And when we throw out God's law as the operating standard for how Christian civilization should look and should continue to look, then like you said, we're bringing in something else. So we're really asking God to share. We want him to share his glory with another. We want God to sort of allow us to straddle the fence and have both things. But if we say thy kingdom come, thy will be done in the earth, what we're saying is if we're not doing everything that works for that, then we have a divided loyalty. We may be praying these prayers or this prayer hypocritically. Yeah, and I think that's something else that people need to examine themselves in in terms of any of their types of prayers. Uh, If we pray at all, and we obviously should be, what exactly are we praying? You know, bless aunt so-and-so, help uncle Fred to get better, please keep me safe on the highway. Well, I, those are well enough as far as they go. But we do know that in terms of the, 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 the Lord's Prayer as a model for prayer, there are many other things that we should be focused on. And, and I'd suggest that if any of our listeners are concerned to do so, one place to start, uh, whether your church regularly repeats the Lord's Prayer or not on Sunday, is to begin your own study of the prayer in its context and, and read, just simply read it in Scripture, but then begin to reflect and meditate on what it says. You know, if something, again, has become habitual or rote, uh, that's because we're not doing the, the homework of really reflecting on what the words mean. Uh, it's certainly true. We can just rattle off all kinds of things that we don't we do so without thinking. Uh, but this is not one of those things that we should let fall into that category. Exactly. So the Lord's Prayer continues. Give us this day our daily bread. Well, 
if you pray that you're you're asking the person the only person who can provide for your daily needs it's not like well today god i'll let you provide for my daily needs and i won't work no that's inconsistent with other parts of scripture but if we think we're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we're the ones who provide the sustenance for ourselves or our families. We're missing the fact that it's God who provides that on a daily basis. So much so that when we thank God for the food, we're also praying and being grateful for the provision, but that it will nourish us, that it will help us. Um, I remember hearing, may it nourish our bodies. And I, when I first heard people praying that way, I think, well, they expect it's going to do. Well, mm-hmm. nowadays, <laughs> there are some things in the food supply that could be harmful. So when we pray before our meal, we're asking God, make this please to our benefit, knowing that how the food even interacts with our bodies has to do with God's providential care. And I think it's also a recognition, another factor in the prayer that recognizes the contemporary, contemporaneous nature and the this world focus of the prayer. Uh, we want bread every day. Our bodies need bread in, in terms of the physical sense, but that's a very much a part of the kingdom. Uh, the, the kingdom is not some future disembodied state where we're all floating up on clouds somewhere. Um, the, the vision that is given to John in the book of Revelation is the heavenly city coming down, you know, to a renewed and restored earth. Uh, so it is a physical kingdom. And in, in terms of the eschatological kingdom, that's something different than what I'm referring to now, which where we live, we do live in the kingdom. If we are in Christ's church, if we are a part of his covenant family. And so in that kingdom, we should be fed. We need sleep. We need work. We need to do all these things to his glory. Now, I think, and maybe at some point we can go further into it, but there's obviously a spiritual application in that Christ tells us he is the bread of life, and uh, we need to be nourished on his body and blood by faith uh, as a part of our regular participation in the the worship of the church. At least that's my opinion, and I, I share it with many others. But I think in terms of what Jesus taught his uh, his disciples, the recognition is is that in this life, the giver of all good gifts and graces is Abba, our Heavenly Father, and that we should ask for uh, a good portion of all the things that he can give us and the, and his blessings in this life. So I live in California, as you know, and California has been being bombarded by um, extreme weather. All right. So it's not unusual. I mean, in some parts of the state, there are five, six feet of snow that some people haven't even been able to leave their homes. In other places... Tornadoes swing through and roofs come off buildings or the power goes out. And so it's customary now for us to get alerts by our cell phones or by the our home phones to let us know that there are these potential problems. And Charles, as I was thinking through this upcoming discussion, which we're having now, sometimes I don't know how to pray. And I think that call that falls under the category of thy will be done. If God is using extreme weather or bank failures or evil government to make his point and to bring his people to a greater reliance on him, I don't know if I should pray, don't let the power go out 
or don't let banks fail. Or in other words, I don't know. I, I have to acknowledge, I don't know what God has in mind. But even if I did know what God has in mind, which I don't, I don't know enough about the banking system or meteorology to be able to know if one thing that's happening here is a benefit or a detriment to another thing that's happening there. And so this reliance on God for whatever he, whatever his will is, his will might be that parts of the world go back to the stone ages. I don't know that that's true or not, but that may be his will. Am I going to argue with God as to what his will is? Yeah, we have to be continually reminding ourselves on some level that he is God and we are not. You know, we we obviously should pray for the blessings of life as that, you know, uh, that part of the prayer says, you know, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this bread every day. And maybe by extension, that means please keep the power on, you know. Right, right. Uh, that, that sort of thing. So, uh, but yeah, we, we don't know the overarching theme and purpose for what God has in the larger events that take place. But I think most Christians can point to some things in their lives, if not many, where something happened that they might have preferred not happen, but somewhere down the road, whether it be sooner or later, the Lord brought some marvelous good thing out of it. Right. So whatever God does is for our benefit, but primarily for his glory. And when you said, like, it might not be a bad idea, pray that the lights stay on. Well, yes, I, I, I ideally like to have the electricity work, but when the electricity goes off, it doesn't mean that God hasn't heard my prayer. It's that my prayer didn't include everything God has in mind. And that dependence and reliance is something that actually gives peace as opposed to making someone anxious because really, and maybe you wouldn't agree with me on this, but we can only live in the present because that's the only time we actually have. And we can plan for the future. We can learn from the past. But if we're not daily living out this idea that we depend on God, then like I said, we're either fooling ourselves or we're double-minded. We we really want to make sure that uh, we ensure that bad things don't happen to us and that good results in everything. And I think, uh, yes, what, one of the things that's reflected in the content of the prayer, in addition to the uh, the better standard or the corrective that Jesus was giving in the prayer compared to the prayers of the Gentiles and uh, and, and the other people who just pray long, flowery prayers. Um, it is also the standard model for the whole question of what exactly is prayer. And the the catechism's answer to that question, which I think is a very valuable one, and, and li- listen to this. I, I hope our listeners can pick up on the, the, the several points of this answer about what prayer is. It's an offering up of our desires unto God. Now, if it, it doesn't stop there, because it goes on to say, for things agreeable to his will, in the name of Christ, with confession of sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. So obviously, you know, there may be somebody who uh, may be praying like uh, the the song that was popular in yours in my day, uh, Oh Lord, won't you give me a Mercedes Benz, you know. But that may not be a part of God's will. It probably isn't. But I think that's the key thing is that when we go to the Lord in prayer, we need to pray in a way that is agreeable to his will. The Lord's prayer is a model of that sort of thing. 
but it presupposes that we know something about what God's will is in terms of our personal lives, the lives of our family, the life of our nation, which means that we must have some familiarity and ideally a good familiarity with what God's law teaches. Exactly. And then the prayer goes on to talk about forgiving us our debts. In one um, of the Gospels, it says debts. In another, it says trespasses. Now, debts has a very financial ring to it because you owe somebody something. You either owe them money, you owe them service, you owe them something. Trespasses has this connotation for me is where I violate you in some way injure you, bother you, or whatever, but we don't have this financial debt that necessarily is hanging on this. But the fact that we pray to God to forgive our debts, and then the clause, as we forgive our debtors, makes it first and foremost that that's what we are. We're debtors who have had our debts or trespasses paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're supposed to live in that kind of context. In other words, no matter what someone does to me, it doesn't mean that I'm the person who has had the greatest offense ever. It's that I've already recognized I'm an offender and I've been granted mercy. So mercy doesn't get thrown out. Under no circumstances could I show mercy to this person. And it, it again, puts us in the present in terms of what is our status before the Lord? Is it our good works? Is it our good deeds? Or is it the works and deeds of Jesus Christ? The delineation of the differences between debts, debtors, trespasses is an important one. And the the nature of that part of the prayer is that we recognize that in our debts being forgiven, the specific result of that is that now we are thereby empowered and are obligated to forgive the debts of others who, just as we have sincerely repented of our sins, they are sincerely uh, sorry and seeking forgiveness for how they may have wronged us or vice versa. This, I think, becomes very, very important, especially in our time where we live in a very angry time. There's a lot going on in society. Okay, there's always been that, and you know uh, we can dismiss everything with a wave of the hand. But w- we live in a time where there's a lot of things going on that has a lot of different people across a lot of different cross sections of communities very angry. Yes, yes. And the problem that we have to avoid in the household of God is to not be infected with that spirit of the age, because you know it, it, it's our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus to whom we are first and foremost obligated. Uh, to treat as family members. And so uh, on the one hand, we must understand something about the nature of sincere repentance and the necessity of seeking forgiveness. But there have been perhaps far too many cases where someone who has sought that forgiveness from a fellow believer, but because of hardness of heart and a lack of understanding of what Jesus has taught us in this prayer, that forgiving of the debt has not been forthcoming. Unless anybody think, well, yeah, that's the reason why we shouldn't put murderers to death. That's the reason why we shouldn't require restitution, because we're supposed to forgive our debtors. It doesn't nullify the previous petition that says, thy kingdom come in the earth as it is in heaven. We're not throwing out God's law by being people willing to forgive, because we're not going to be ever be able to be holier than God. And so... 
the right response to someone who has taken a life is that their life should be taken. Okay, that's what the scripture says. Well, think about what that means today with just the sheer number of abortions that have taken place in the West. Are we going to go out and ask people, did you have an abortion? Yes. Okay, now we're going to put you to death. No, the purpose of the gospel is to let the lawbreakers know the hopelessness of their situation, but the blessing of someone, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, taking the punishment. It doesn't nullify the civil law that God wants in place Because when you put that civil law in place, it has this amazing way of making sure that the murderer never murders again because he's not there. But it doesn't nullify the forgiveness of sins. And I do think, Charles, that's why we have included in the narrative of Calvary the thief on the cross. Jesus never said what you did was fine. He said because of how you're relating to me in repentance, you'll be with me in the kingdom. Yeah, one area where people, when they encounter the claim, and it is a valid claim, that the whole of God's word is applicable to all areas of life, and that his standard of living is a full-orbed one and applies to every aspect of man's being. They don't like that, particularly when it comes to what you were referring to a moment ago, how the death penalty is required by God for certain types of sins and certain types of of infractions. Uh, One reason for that is that this is God's way of criminal population control. Now, you can certainly turn away from it and prefer a humanistic standard, and you end up where we are today. But People who think uh, in this mindset that, oh, well, you know, in the Old Testament, they were hard-hearted and all this, it, it's sort of a an intentional mischaracterization of what God's law actually says in specific circumstances. But, you know, in the New Testament, we don't, we, we shouldn't be so harsh. Well, yeah. I would ask our listeners to understand that it's the Apostle Paul in the New Testament who in Romans chapter 1 refers to various types of decadent evil behavior specifically referring to not only but to certain types of sexual decadence, he says that those who practice such things deserve to die. That's Paul. You know, that's not something out of Deuteronomy. Uh, Well, it is in one sense, but the point is that this is what God's Word tells us. But the major point we're trying to stress, I think, here is that we all are in a, a debtor situation to God prior to our being redeemed by him. And that's where we want to be. We want to be moving out of a state of under God's wrath and curse that's due to us for our sins to be in a state of being in his family and and the beneficiaries of his mercy and grace and seeking his forgiveness and being assured of that forgiveness and the fact that then we then may forgive others. Exactly. And then there's this interesting part that says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So first of all, it's an acknowledgement that evil exists and that temptation exists and that we're vulnerable to both. Now, a lot of people would like to say, well, I've now become a Christian. I'm, I, I'm above all that. Well, then they're liars 
because John says in his epistle that if you say you don't sin, you're a liar. The truth is not in you because everybody continues to sin, but not sin in the kind of defiant rebellion that says there is no God and I don't have to listen to his law, the kind of sin that's a manifestation that we're not fully sanctified. So we have to not be surprised that temptation is out there. We don't have to say, wow, I just never believed that there was this kind of evil. Well, if you understand why Christ had to die, then you shouldn't have a hard time understanding the evil that exists. But not that evil or temptation are not under the authority and power of God. They most certainly are. And we, again, by making this petition, say we know we're vulnerable. I, I haven't arrived, God. You know what? You can spend your time on all those other folks who really need you. I've gotten to a point where I don't really need you. That's the exact pharisaical view that brought about in that parable that the publican was more right before God than the Pharisee. So everything about this prayer, the more I look at it, is renewed dependence on God, a humility that then gives us the opportunity to obey without reservation. Yeah, and this part of the um, what's technically, I guess, the sixth petition of the prayer, we are specifically asking that the Lord would keep us from being tempted. But then also the, the second part of that is that we know we will be, and because it may be, again, we don't know his divine will for all things, but no Christian goes through life without temptation. So the second part is equally important, that he supports us and delivers us when we are facing temptation. So it's it's two important things where we recognize that we have every right and expectation that the Lord would keep us from temptation. But on the other hand, you know, we will inevitably get ourselves into situations where that will happen, regardless of what you fill in the blank there as to what the temptation is. So we also are asking him to support and deliver us when we are tempted. And part and parcel of that deliverance is understanding that we come to him, confess our sins, and he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and then cleanse us so that we're not walking around with, I'm just such a terrible person. I'm such a terrible person. We acknowledge this forgiveness of sins and allows us to then continue to serve the kingdom. Yeah, and I've thought about this a long time and on many occasions, and I think this is an area uh, in our Christian study in our churches where I think there could be some maybe better guidance and instruction about the fact that we should feel guilty if we give in to temptation, but then recognizing that if we sincerely repent of our sins and, as the Catechism puts it, endeavor after a new obedience— and we, we can be assured of God's pardon, of the Lord pardoning our sins. You know, but I think there's something, I don't know, it, maybe it comes from the, the super pietistic emphasis of uh, some Christian traditions, or maybe it's a pagan influence where people think, well, if I don't continually feel bad about that thing I did, well, then maybe I haven't really been all that sincere about it. And that's kind of a trap in that we never get beyond that that point of things. So feeling cleansed is no more significant than feeling that you're sinful. A lot of people don't feel they're sinful. So this, this emotional tie that says, but I still, I just don't feel right anymore. Either you believe 
what the scripture says that you're forgiven and you're cleansed, right? Or you don't. So even that can become an element of not accepting God's will. God's will tells us, okay, you're still going to sin. You confess it. You'll be, you repent of it. You'll be forgiven and you'll be cleansed. So it should be enough that that's what God's word says. The fact that it isn't for some people, maybe is that they're still relying on their own strength. Yeah, I uh, am remembering the words of a uh, of, of a motiv- motivational speaker who said something like, uh, "You know, you can't make yourself poor enough to make up for somebody else's poverty." And I think, in a, in a similar way, um, you can keep on beating yourself up about that thing that you did. But if you have truly repented sincerely and you have been assured of the Lord's forgiveness. Well, you can't increase the validity and the blessing of that forgiveness and that restoration by continuing feeling guilty. So mm-hmm. uh, I think, again, this is another area where the Lord's Prayer gives us very, very powerful guidance. And then it ends with, I think, the affirmation of the person praying that you understand who it is you're praying to. You're not just praying to someone who has some power, you're not praying to someone, you know, has a significant kingdom. What we're saying is thine is the kingdom. So there is no other kingdom and the power. There's no one more powerful. And then the glory. And that's a little tougher to get our hands around. Like what exactly is glory? But what we're saying is he is something so thoroughly other than we are. I guess the only way to really describe it is glory, right? But we've gone to the right place. You know how when you call up and you say, if you need this, press one. If you need this, press two. And then you'll do all your little pressings of it. And then you get to that person and and the person says, I'm sorry, this is not the department. Call again. And then clunk, you're done. That's not our situation. When we go to our father, we've gone to the right place. The question is, are we willing to say his is the kingdom, his is the power, his is the glory, his is the law and the rule, and that's where then our comfort comes from. So that's why I'm saying, if you really think about this, not only is it radical in terms of what we're supposed to do, but is there any reason to be distressed or worried that somehow or other things are out of control? No, not if we pray this prayer with knowledge and understanding and in faith. And there is also no reason, therefore, not to pray this prayer and pray it on a regular basis. And when I say that, I mean not only say the words, but uh, deeply think about what they mean. Uh, As I was just rereading that part of the the closing part of the prayer, I was thinking about the context and the time in which Jesus originally gave it. When the the standard wisdom would have substituted words like for this is Caesar's kingdom, this is Rome's power, and Caesar and Rome, uh, they are the glory forever and ever. I mean, there are words similar to that that would have been used to uh, describe the Roman government and its leaders. And so this is another aspect of this prayer, even in the closing of it, that we recognize that God Almighty that we take our encouragement in prayer from him and him alone. 
And just so it's clear to those who might not know, gospel, the word gospel, was not unique to Christianity. Caesar had a gospel. He had a good news. He had a way in which things were going to be ordered. So by saying, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, this was a challenge against the world system, against the statism of the time. And to say it unabashedly, and then along with that, Jesus is Lord, is why Christians were martyred. They weren't martyred because they were this pietistic people that, you know, didn't bother anyone. This Christianity was a challenge to the world system because it was declaring Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And by the way, he is right now, not like he's going to be. He is right now. And I think that that jives well with the very beginning of the prayer that we have at the very beginning, this gripping and powerful recognition that it is to Abba, our Father, that we pray. And then we recognize as we come to the end of the prayer that he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is We live in his kingdom, and there is no other that has any validity whatsoever. So I guess my uh, my parting words would be that we would encourage our listeners to pray this prayer uh, if you're in a church that prays it uh, on the Lord's Day each Sunday, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, if not, or, or even if you are, there's no reason not to pray this prayer on a daily basis. And uh, importantly, or just as importantly, to think deeply about each phrase, each word uh, of what it truly means. And I think pe- people will find that uh, it can be a tremendous blessing, if not uh, a transforming experience in their lives. Yes. And I'll just end with, okay, so in Matthew, the prayer has been given. But then what does Jesus tell his disciples? He says, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Now, that one really and truly can pull the rug under from some people because it's like, wait a minute. I thought we were forgiven without, without, you know, condition. But there's a condition here. The condition says, if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And I don't know about you, Charles, but that takes a lot of consideration in terms of what's my posture towards people who've offended me or bother me or do nasty things to me. If you're going to say this prayer, as you've just encouraged people to do, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive our trespassers or those who trespass against us, it means we have to put in check, are we demanding something more or less than the gospel, the law of God requires? And I think that's why you can really only pray this prayer faithfully and unhypocritically because you're constantly looking at yourself and say, hmm, I got some work to do on me. And how can I make the situation better? How can I take my enemy and help that person become my friend and part of the family of God? Yes, indeed. Good words. We encourage our listeners to take that to heart indeed. I hope you benefited from this. I certainly have, and uh, it's given me 
in the preparation for this discussion, lots to think about. And so I'd be interested in those who listen, your feedback. You can reach us at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And Charles, I know you are. I look forward to comments and, and, and ideas from what we talk about. Yes, absolutely. We, we love to hear from those of you who listen with, again, as Andrea said, ideas, suggestions, and, and especially compliments. <laughs> Charles likes the compliments. <laughs> All right, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.